Well, all right. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you here today. Can I tell you a quick story from my childhood, from high school? Anybody want to hear a quick story? When I was in high school, um, I played on a soccer team um, that the soccer team was fairly uh, skilled and we won a fair amount of games. But the reason that we won so many games wasn't because of my tremendous skill. What was because of one gentleman on our team named Ben Bosworth. Ben Bosworth. Ben Bosworth was a couple grades older than I was, and Ben was our, uh, our center midfield player. He basically controlled the game. He was a man-child. He was incredibly huge. I mean, his legs were about the size of my entire body. I mean, he was so massive, and he was so huge, and then he was the most skilled player on the entire team. And he was so big, and he could kick the ball a mile, and he would just pummel other kids. I mean, literally, I, was so, I felt so terribly for uh, the other parents of the other children on the other side of the team uh, because he just would run over kids one after another um, and just completely pummel them and destroy them because of how huge he was. And we went on to win so many games, and I think even played in the state championship one year because of Ben Bosworth. And this is what we would do, whether we were losing or whatever was happening, we weren't really worried because we had Ben on our team. If you get the ball to Ben, just make sure Ben gets the ball and he would score from regardless of where he was on the field, he would figure out a way to score and we would say, Ben's got it. Ben's got it. Because he was on our team and we were destined to win. What if I told you today that God was on your team? What if I told you today that you got somebody on your team who is on your side, who is unstoppable, who is so huge and is so big, it doesn't matter where you're at and it doesn't matter what you are going through, God's got it. Somebody say, God's got it. Today, I want you to believe from our text and I want you to understand that God's got it. And regardless of the circumstance or situation you might be facing, and many of us are facing desperate circumstances, I want you to believe today that God's got it. We find ourselves in Esther chapter 6, and the story in the book of Esther that we have been walking through, Esther and Mordecai and God's people are in a foreign land, away from their homeland, in a foreign land, under a foreign king, a foreign dictator, and the situation is bad. The situation is real bad. It is not looking good for God's people. They have rebelled against God. They have fleed from God's presence. They have been captured. They have been enslaved into the Persian Empire under this king Ahasuerus, also known by his Greek name Xerxes. And they're living in this foreign empire under this foreign king, and things are getting bad. One moment, though, there seems to be a glimmer of hope when Esther, one of God's children, part of the Jewish people, part of God's people, actually becomes a queen of the entire empire. She chooses not to disclose her identity and her ethnic identity and her religious identity and who she is. And God promotes her through a series of tragic events to become queen in the entire Persian empire. But then we see this duel that is happening between God's people and the enemy of God's people. A man steps onto the scene named Haman. He is an Agagite. He is from the descendants of Amalek and the Amalekites. 
He is completely against God, completely against God's people. He is in complete opposition to anything and everything that God would ever want to do. He is an enemy of God. And here we see this great duel between Mordecai and Haman. This duel between God and his enemy. This duel between good and evil that we find ourselves in. And Haman has issued a decree throughout the entire empire for a date that will annihilate every Jew in the empire. It's ethnic genocide. It's a death sentence. Every single Jew, every single child, every single woman, every single man will die if they are a Jew. And Esther, in a moment of bravery and confidence and courage, stands before this wicked foreign king and he actually lets her in and she is getting ready to make a plea and an appeal to save her people, including Herself. And this is where we find ourselves in Esther chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Just as this verse is unfolding, Haman has concocted a plan to not only get rid of all of God's people, but to go ahead and first get rid of Mordecai. Mordecai will not bow to Haman. Haman decides to build the gallows, this large wooden structure in his backyard in which he wants to execute Mordecai the following day. We see this in verse 1. Now on that night, the king could not sleep. Interestingly enough, the same night that Haman is constructing gallows for Mordecai's execution, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, uh, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. What do you do when you can't sleep at night? Watch a little Netflix, go downstairs, see what's in the fridge, see what's in the cabinet, get your midnight snack, whatever it is. Uh, maybe read a book, maybe, maybe, maybe read the Bible because you're so spiritual, can't sleep in the middle of the night. This king, what does this king do? What does Ahasuerus do? He decides to read the chronicles, to read um, the archives of his kingdom. And so he brings in one of his eunuchs and asks him to go ahead and to begin to read the archives, probably his method for going back to sleep, verse 2. And it was found written how Mordecai, this is in the archives, had told about Bigthana and Teresh. These were the enemies of the king. Two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, wow, Mordecai, I forgot about that. The guy saved my life. Well, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? What have we done for the guy? Well, the, young, the king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Well, the King has to do something. Verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he prepared for him. He just built him. Verse 5, and the king's young men told him, well, Haman is there. Haman's actually out there. He's standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. What timing? Verse 6, so Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What should we do, Haman? I want to honor someone. What should we do? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? That's how you know you're narcissistic. That's how you know you're egotistical. No one in this room, though, but you know you're egotistical and everything around you has to do with you. You are at the center of everything that happens. Got to go to the place that you want to eat at. 
Got to do the things that you want to do. It all exists for you. You are at the center of everything. Haman, in his narcissistic mind, thinks, who else in the kingdom would the king want to honor other than me? I am the most honorable in the entire kingdom. So Haman, thinking of himself in verse 7, says, Haman said to the king, for the, man the, who, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, which is a little creepy, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one, to one of the king's most uh, noble officials, and then let that official, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Amen, that's a great idea. I didn't, I couldn't think about, I didn't think of that myself. That is a fantastic idea. King said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so. To Mordecai, the Jew, do that to him who sits at the king's gate. At this point, Haman's jaw has dropped. What? I'm sorry? Come back? Hold on, bro. Me and you, king, like we're me one and two. Mordecai. He's the guy that doesn't bow down. We don't like him. What? What are you? Mordecai. And do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Make sure you do everything that you said because that was a really good plan. Verse 11. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. He goes into the king's green room, dresses Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. If you're in the city, you remember just a few verses earlier, the city was disturbed. The city was in turmoil because of Haman's wicked plan that he had concocted against the Jews, Mordecai. And now everybody's like, hold on, didn't we just issue a decree to kill the Jews? Wasn't it Haman's idea? And now he put Mordecai, the Jew, on the king's horse and is walking him through the city saying, let's honor this guy. What an amazing set of coincidences we see in this chapter. Such an unlikely set of coincidences. I find at least eight. Will I read them all? Yes, I will. Coincidence number one. Coincidence number one. It just so happens in verse one, the king could not sleep. It just so happens the king could not sleep. I mean, he's, y'all, he's got the best mattress in the kingdom. He's got, he's got a my pillow. I mean, he's got everything that he needs to have a nice sleep at night. And he, of all people, he, he, he can't sleep for whatever reason. Coincidence number one. Coincidence number two, it just so happens the king decides to read a history book in the middle of the night. Going to read the archives in the middle of the night. Coincidence number three, it just so happens they read the section where Mordecai saves the king's life. Eunuch opens a book and he's like, ah, yeah, this, let's start reading uh, right here. And uh, Morde- remember that time Mordecai saved your life. It just so happens they read that section. A coincidence number four. It just so happens that no one has done anything to reward Mordecai for saving the king's life. Such a bizarre oversight, don't you think? Save the king's life. Coincidence number five. It just so happens that Haman arrives early in the morning in the king's court at the same time the king asks who might be in the king's court. Coincidence number six. It just so happens... Haman is coming to the king to propose Mordecai's execution on the gallows, which he just built. Coincidence number seven, it just so happens the king doesn't disclose Mordecai's name while requesting Haman's advice on how to 
honor Mordecai. Small oversight. Coincidence number eight, it just so happens that Haman is the one who gets to propose a plan that will honor his adversary, Mordecai. Here's my first point. What we consider coincidence, God considers providence. What we consider coincidence, God considers providence. We often say, well, what a coincidence. Funny seeing you here. We call those divine moments, divine opportunities, the circumstances in your life that God is sovereign over. His providential hand is ordering the events in your life. And regardless of where you may find yourself and regardless of how bad things might be, we believe and hold to the providential hand of God in our life. Solomon would tell us in Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are from the Lord. The psalmist would tell us in Psalm 73, verse 23, yet I am always with you. You, God, hold me by my right hand. I wonder if you believe today that God holds you by your right hand. Isaiah the prophet would tell us in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 would say, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. We would also see in Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. little side point here, every leader, every king, every emperor, every president is in the hand of the Lord. And like a stream of water, the Lord turns it however he will. For us as believers, it doesn't matter who's in the White House because we know that we are in God's house. It matters who's in God's house and who's actually leading and who's in charge. And at every single moment of human history, God is the one in charge. And he will use anybody to do his purposes. Even a foreign king, even a wicked king, even a wicked president. Anybody. Good president, bad president, doesn't matter. He will do his purposes through anybody that is in charge. Because he is providentially governing the world. Providence is the way that God directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill his purposes. Providence to the Christian is uh, what George Lucas is to Luke Skywalker. Providence to the Christian is what J.R.R. Tolkien is to the Lord of the Rings. What Eric Roth is to Forrest Gump. What Ryan Coogler is to Black Panther. Providence is the accomplishments of the screenwriter's will without ever appearing on the screen. And though the one behind the story remains invisible, his plot is visible. And as with many films, the book of Esther does not reveal the maker behind the story. We've told you 10 chapters, 167 verses, and the name of God isn't mentioned once. And trusting in providence means that though God's purposes may be unseen, his presence is all around. So I'll say this to you today. The circumstances in your life are not coincidental. They are providential. The circumstances in your life are not coincidental, they are providential, which means if you believe in providence, then at every point in your life, God is up to something. 
If you believe in the providence of God and you belong to God, then at every point in your life, God is up to something. God is up to something. God is doing something. And when it seems like God is most absent, he is actually most active. And when his name isn't mentioned and when you can't actually see what he is doing, he is active in your life. Which means even in the worst of circumstances, even in pain, even in suffering, even in sin, even in fear, even in anxiety, even in hurt, even in loss, even in anguish, even in opposition, even in injustice, God is up to something. Somebody say, God is up to something. God is up to something. God's got it. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews would tell us in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What if we all believed and had the same mentality What can man do to me? Most of our lives are dictated and dominated by what man can do to us. Most of our lives are directed because of what a woman can do to us, what a man can do to us, what someone else can do to us, and we architect our lives based on the people that are around us and what other people can do to us. We spend the majority of our time worrying about what other people are going to do. We spend the majority of our time worrying about what other people are going to think. We spend the majority of our time worrying what other people are going to feel about us. Rather than understanding and believing, what can man do to me? If God is for me, if God is my helper, then what can man do to me? It doesn't matter what man can do to me if God is on my side and if God is for me. Now, in order to live this way, in order to operate this way, it requires faith. And here's what faith is. I've said this over and over again. Faith is operating according to the unseen. Faith is living your life and operating according to what you cannot see. Faith is operating according to what is not in the physical realm around you, but is in the spiritual realm around you. And then living according to spiritual realities rather than physical realities. Faith is aligning your heart and aligning your mindset to that which cannot be seen by human eyes. And then faith is action. It's taking action and acting in accordance what is true about God and may not seem to be true about your circumstances. And that's faith. Say it this way. I'm pretty p- proud of this one. I, I stole it from another pastor. Faith is the ability to trust God even when you cannot trace God. What do you do when you can't trace God? What do you do when you can't see God? What do you do when he doesn't tell you what the next turn is? Do you trust God? Do you have faith? In, do you believe that he's actually good? Do you believe that he's actually powerful? Do you believe that he's got it? you believe that God's got it? I love the way that the old... King James Version said, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
the evidence of things not seen. Living and operating according to things that are not seen. That's what faith is. And he would say just a few verses later, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. God is putting you in a situation. God is putting you in circumstances in which you have to trust him. In which you have to trust his hand when you can't see his hand. You've got to operate according to who he is rather than operating according to the circumstances that are around you. It's kind of like a GPS. How many of you like to use a GPS whenever you travel different places? Hopefully you use... Um, on your app, hopefully you use uh, Google, Ma Google Maps um, and not Apple Maps because um, <laughs> Apple Maps will lead you astray every time. It'll take you to somewhere where you did not want to go. We'll pray for Now, I'm an Apple guy. I love Apple. I'm a big Apple fan, except when it comes to Apple Maps because it, this, they're getting better. I, I understand the data is getting better. It's getting a little better, but it doesn't compare to Google, to Google Maps. And so... Please do not open Apple Maps on your phone. It will lead you astray. But if you use Google Maps, the beautiful thing about a GPS navigation system is that you can put in the address and the destination, and then it will take you where you need to go. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing about um, myself and, and my wife. Um, and if you're married here today, I think this is probably true about you. You are opposites. All right, you are opposites, all right, which means you have a different idea that comes into your mind whenever you travel, like... The process of traveling is probably different for the two of you. For me, if we're headed to the mountains, I know that the mountains are west, so we just start going west. And at some point, when I need a direction, I will ask for other further directions to the destination where we need uh, to go. But, you know, so, I'm picking on my wife a little bit. Some of you, you know, you love the GPS. You want to know exactly what the destination is. You put the address in your phone before you leave uh, out of your garage, and you hit start. And then you immediately look at the ETA to see exactly when you're going to be arriving at your destination. And then five minutes later, you look at the ETA. And then five minutes later, you look at the ETA. And then five minutes later, you look at the ETA in order to see where you are, are, are going. Just joking. Just, just joking. Um, the beautiful thing about a GPS navigation system is you know where you're going, and then you get steps along the way to tell you every turn, and it speaks to you in whatever accent you prefer. It's amazing. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was on the way to my brother's um, new, new property. Um, my brother Seth and my sister-in-law Laura bought a few acres um, in the middle of South Carolina outside of a little town called Conway, outside of an even smaller town called Loris. Um, in the middle of, of nowhere, and he said, man, I got this property. It was my birthday. We're going to go down there and uh, shoot some guns, shoot some skeet, have a good time. And I said, just tell me what the address is, and then I'll meet you there. I'll just plug it into the GPS, and, and I'll get there, which I prefer that. You know, I, I don't prefer, hey, head, head, head past the orange house and then take a right, and, you know, where the old uh, uh, grocery store used to be, then, then take a right, and then we're down the fourth house on the left. I don't care. Just give me the address, okay? Give me the address, and I'll figure out how to get there. Um, some of you prefer that other method. Um, my brother, he said, well, there's only one problem. Um, I actually don't have an address <laughs> because this is like acres in the middle of a field in the middle of the woods somewhere. I'm like, okay, well, how do I, how do I get there? He's like, well, you got to get on this highway and you got to get on this road and you got to head a few miles and then you got to take another right on this highway. And then only, about a quarter mile, once you're going down this, look for the power lines that are crossing the road. 
And once you, once you see, see the power lines, you know that you're getting close, okay? So start to slow down. Um, and then up on the right, you're going to see a field, and you're going to see a set of trees that come by. And then there's a little drive, a little uh, dirt drive right, right past, uh, right past the, the set of trees. And then take, take a right. Don't go too fast, but take a right on that dirt lane. And then once you get on the dirt lane, you need to go about three or 400 yards. And then there's a field on your left, and there's woods on, or field on your right, woods on your left. And then when you get to the end of the field, you need to take a left uh, through a set of trees, and the dirt road's going to keep going that way. Don't take the one to the right. Take the one to the left. And then once you take the left, you're going to see my neighbor's house. Make sure you wave at the neighbor so he knows that you're not a freak. And uh, make sure you wave at the neighbor, and then he'll be on the front porch. He's always on the front porch. And then uh, once you pass the neighbor's house, about another couple hundred yards, you're going to see another row of trees and go through those row of trees and then take a right, and then that's where our property is. By God's grace, I got there on the, on, on the day that I was supposed um, to, to get there. You ever been in a situation where the GPS was done and they were like, it was like, uh, navigation has ended. Navigation is, has ended, and it actually can't tell you what the next steps and the next direction is. The thing about faith is that you've got to trust God, and you've got to believe God even when the navigation ends. Even when you don't have the next step, and even when you don't have the destination, and even when you don't know how it is going to go. Now, let's just be honest. I mean, some of us are completely fine with trusting God if he tells us the plan up front. I mean, some of us are completely fine with trusting God if everything is clear, but it's altogether something different to trust God when there is no clear destination, when there is not a GPS navigation, and when the next turn is unknown. But God is too much, uh, is too much God to tell you what he's doing, how he's doing it, and when he's doing it. God is too much God. If you knew all the turns and the destination, you might as well be God. The point of not being God is that you do not know, and he expects you to trust him. Trust him with the process, trust you with the directions, trust, uh, trust him rather with the direction, trust him with the destination. I'm getting confused. A real relationship with God necessitates that you will simply trust God to get done what God will do even when you cannot make sense of it. And that is providence. When you look at your life and you look at the circumstances of your life, do you believe that God's got it? You know, the, the great thing and the hard thing about being a pastor is too often I sit across the table uh, from you and get to hear your situation and get to hear your story and get to hear what you're going through. And most of the time, it's desperate circumstances. And my hope in those moments is to be able to encourage you and to remind you that you've got a God that loves you and that cares for you and that is working for your good even when you cannot see it. And that if you'll just be faithful and hang in there and only do what he has called you to do, he's going to be faithful as well and meet you where you are and get you through it. 
And that's providence. It's trusting God that he is good in all the circumstances and the situations. What we see today in the text is a desperate situation, way more desperate than any of our circumstances. But we see the providential hand of God working on the behalf of his people against their enemies and against their foes. You know, it's even harder to trust God when it seems the people who don't like us or the people who are against us or who are over us are prospering while we're perishing. It's even harder to trust God when those closest to us end up being those against us. It's hard to trust God in the face of an enemy in the middle of desperate conditions. The beauty of providence is that God will not let your enemies get away with destroying his plan for your life even when your enemies are over you. No enemy can thwart the plan of God. The story continues in verse 12. It says this. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. It's been a good day for Mordecai. That was fun. Got to ride on the king's horse today. That was pretty awesome. Got to wear his crown. He goes back to the king's gate, which is kind of his normal station. But Haman, what did Haman do? Haman hurried to his home mourning with his head covered. Haman's... Haman told his, his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. That's a little bit of pity party. Guys, you're not going to believe what happened. I know that we just built these gallows. And I know that this was the plan. And we were going to execute uh, Mordecai. You're not going to believe this. I actually put Mordecai on a horse today and walked him through the city and honored him. You're not going to believe this. He tells, tells his friends and his wife. Then his wise men and his, his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people... You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived. Secret service came and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had uh, prepared. You know, I find that it's interesting that godless, wicked people recognize the hand of God and the providence of God in the situation. I mean, Mordecai's wife and friends are like, you're screwed, man. I mean, they're like, they're like, oh, Mordecai's a Jew? Oh, you forgot to mention that. They have this thing on their side called God. Yeah, we were, we were, that was a bad idea. That was wrong trying to mess with. I mean, you remember what happened to Amalek, the Amalekites, Amalek, you know, our great-great-great-granddad? Remember what happened to Agag? Yeah, that's getting ready to happen to you, too. We shouldn't have messed with, we shouldn't have messed with them. They got God on their side. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says this. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. This is feast number 2. And on the second day, it's a pretty good feast, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, Finally, Esther, hey, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Please tell me. This is the second time we're doing the feast. Just tell me what your request is. I would love to be able to grant your request. Verse 3, then Esther answered, If... I have found favor in your sight, O king. She's been working on this speech for a while. And if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. Seems simple enough. For, verse 4, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed. At this point, the king is like, what? Really? You're the queen. What are you talking about? To be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus said to the queen, what? Who is he? And where is he? Who's, who's, who's responsible for this? Who has dared to do this? 
Verse 6, Esther looks away from the king, looks into Haman's eyes and says, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I'll summarize the following section for you. The king exits. He leaves the feast. I mean, he is so shocked. He, he, he's so angry. He's actually confused. Commentators say that he's trying to devise a plan. He's trying to figure out what to do. He, he leaves. He just finds out that his queen has a death sentence against her that has been issued by Haman. But the problem is, is that the king's signet ring was used to stamp the plan and the decree that would actually kill his wife, Esther. The king recognizes now that he has exited the room that he is actually complicit in the plan too. And he has to come up with an idea or he has to come up with a plan that will get rid of Haman without getting rid of himself because he's actually complicit in it. Whatever he does to Haman, he's got to do to himself. He, he walks out, he's angry, he's furious, he's shocked, he doesn't know what to do. Commentators say that he is like, um, has rage and all this anguish and is not exactly what's happening. While he is out, Haman, he, he comes before um, Esther and says, please, Esther, don't do this. Please, we got to figure out a way. He's begging for his life. It says, the text says, he's falling on her couch. Like he's on his hands and knees in front of her begging for his salvation and for his deliverance. And then what happens? The king comes back in. The king comes back into the room. Room and he's like, he, he makes this accusation against um, Haman. Uh, he says this uh, in ver- actually, uh, la, la, la. he says this, he says this, look at you, Haman, you're falling on the couch on my wife. He's like, now we can get rid of you. He basically issues this death sentence for Haman. He accuses him of like um, harassing and abusing his wife, which is actually uh, quite a dramatic response to the situation. He's pleading for his life, but it gives the king license to get rid of Haman. Then we see this in verse 9. Then Harbana, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. And so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Two final observations that I'll try to make briefly as we end this today. Number one, the first observation. To those whom God is against. I would love to give you a nice, fluffy sermon today that God has no enemies that God loves everyone and everyone is going to end up in a beautiful destination together playing harps in heaven and everything will be nice and dandy. The reality is that we live in a world in which there is great evil. The reality is that we live in a world where there are enemies of God. God has a foe. God has an enemy. And God is against his enemies. Here's where it gets harder. You and I are enemies of God. We like to think that we entered the world neutral. 
We like to believe this idea that everybody's a good person. We're just, we're just good. It just matters how you live your life. You just need to make sure that you do more good than you do bad. The problem with that is that you can't find that anywhere in the Bible. The story of the Bible and the story of history is that you and I are enemies of God. That we weren't, we didn't enter humanity neutral. We actually entered humanity in opposition against God. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Spiritually dead. Spiritually lifeless. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air who's Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the deeds of the desires of the body and of the mind. And he says this. And we're by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. All of mankind is against God. The world isn't a place where everybody's for God and loves God and can't wait to respect God and obey God. We live in a world that is in opposition against God. We don't want to live for God. We don't want to follow God. We don't want to love him. We want to live for ourselves. We want to love ourselves and be our own God. Why would we want to give anyone else authority over our lives when we can do whatever we want to do with our lives? We're in opposition and rebellion against God. As well, Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. And Solomon would tell us in Proverbs 11, 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. Here's what I need you to understand. There are those whom God is against. And I don't want you to be a Haman against God and against the purposes of God and against the plans of God, but with God, for God, Loving God on his team. Here's the good news. Is that God loves you. Even when you were an enemy against him. Even when you were in opposition against him. He would love you to the degree that he would actually give himself for you. And that he would sacrifice himself and his own well-being for your well-being. And when you did not deserve it, zero percent, he would give you a hundred percent of his righteousness. So that you could know him and love him and be adopted into his family. If you are not with him, you are against him. To those whom God is against. Here's the second observation. To those whom God is for. It's a beautiful thing for God to be for you. It's a beautiful thing when God is on your team. It's a beautiful thing when God is your center midfielder. Romans would tell us this, Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on your team, it doesn't matter what the other team is doing. 
It doesn't matter how stacked the other team is. It doesn't matter what they've got. It doesn't matter how awesome they are. If God is for you, who can be against you? I'll say it this way. If you belong to God, your battle belongs to him. If you belong to God, your battle belongs to him. Some of you love to fight your battles. Oh, my goodness. Some of you love to just fight. Some of you think that you got the strength, you got the power, you got the ability, you got the experience, you got the education, and you can just fight your own battles. The sooner you get to the point where you recognize that God is fighting for you, it will relieve you of the need to feel like you have to fight for yourself. If God is for you, he is fighting your battles. If you belong to him, then the battle belongs to him as well. If you belong to God, he never stops fighting for you. If you belong to God, he is fighting your battles. If you belong to God, he never sleeps or slumbers. He never takes a break. He never has a halftime. He never gives up. He is always fighting and he is always working for you. And he is working his plan even when you cannot see it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me read verse 32 as well. How do we know that God is for us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's the best way. Maybe you're wondering today, how do you know if God is for you? How do you know if God is on your side? Um, Here's how you know. Here's the best way. Here's the ultimate way. Here's the most clear way that you know is that God didn't spare his own son but gave his son for you. And if God would give his son for you and you would respond in faith to him, then God is, is, is for you. And you don't have any, any worries, any anxieties in the world. Give all of your anxieties to him. And here's how I close. I love, I love the way that the story goes. I love this moment, this passage, these two chapters that we're reading are the climax of the entire story of Esther. It's a climax of the story, and we see here the great reversal. The great reversal. The word here for gallows is a word that we don't use very often, but the Hebrew word for gallows can literally be translated as tree or trees or wood. Some would even translate it wooden beam. The gallows that were built and constructed 50 cubits high, this was a wooden structure that was built for the execution and the hanging of Mordecai. You see, Mordecai was the insolent, lowly, foreign rebel. Mordecai would not bow and obey the king's command. He was supposed to show honor to the one at the king's right hand, but refused. Because of Mordecai's rebellion, a large wooden gallow was built for his execution. But just before his impending death, the king issued an unthinkable reversal. And Mordecai's death sentence would be given to someone else, the one at the king's right hand, the most powerful person in the kingdom alongside the king, the one closest to the king. You see, Mordecai was supposed to die. The gallows were meant for him, but someone else took his place, and he was set free. And the king's wrath was therefore abated, and Mordecai would assume the position of the right hand of the king, the one closest to the king. It's the story of the gospel. You were the insolent, lowly foreign rebel who would not bow and obey the king's command. You were supposed to show honor to the one at the king's right hand, but refused. 
And because of your rebellion and because of your refusal, a large wooden cross was built for your execution. But just before your impending death, the king would issue an unthinkable reversal. And your death sentence would be given to someone else, the one at the king's right hand, the most powerful person in the kingdom, alongside the king, the one closest to the king. And you were supposed to die. The cross was meant for you, but someone else took your place and you were set free. The king's wrath was abated and mortar, and you would assume the position of the right hand of the king closest to him. It's a story of the gospel. It's a story of the gospel, and the God's name isn't mentioned one time in the entire book, but his hand is through the whole thing. And I want you to believe today in faith and walk in faith and trust in faith and recognize that even if you don't see the name of God written on your life right now, the hand of God is all over it. And you can trust him, and you can follow him, and he's fighting your battles, and he's got you if you are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.